I invite you to turn to our text in Matthew chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the pew rack in front of you. Uh, We are on page 819, uh, those uh, dark blue Bibles there. Uh, We said this before, but if you don't have a Bible, take one of those home with you. Uh, It's our gift to you. Uh, We have plenty uh, more that we can restock the pews with. Uh, This morning we're looking at Matthew 13, uh, the last few verses of the chapter. Uh, This is uh, not a particularly special sermon. We've been preaching through for just about a year, Matthew's Gospel. Uh, Started it this time last year, so sort of our Advent series at the end of last year were the opening chapters of Matthew. Uh, This this section lines up well as we think about uh, the coming of Christ, who he was, where he was born, uh, what his family was like, what this can tell us uh, about Jesus uh, and his ministry. Uh, We see here, surprisingly, that we sing sort of joyously of welcoming him. Uh, There weren't always joyous songs sung when Jesus came to town. Uh, So follow along with me the final few verses uh, of Matthew 13, picking up at verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. The grass withers, the flower fades. Word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me again? Lord, in what should have been a joyous homecoming, we see rather a sobering story, a sobering account of the rejection of our Lord in the town of Nazareth. Lord, as we look from the perspective of history, halfway around the world from where this actually happened, I pray you would show us if our own hearts don't also reflect somewhat of this same rejection. And if so, you this very morning would turn and would tune uh, our hearts to you so that we would leave this place receiving your Son and our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name, I ask these things. Amen. We all love the story of the hometown kid who makes it good or makes it big, right? Uh, The story of the girl who grew up down the street and and she went away and she became famous. Uh, And she put your little town or your little neighborhood or your your little school on the map. Maybe it's that that boy who went off and became uh, the great quarterback, right? And he comes back to town and and everybody knows your town because of this guy. And you tell your friends, yeah, I was in third grade with him, right? I saw him throw in trash balls in the trash can. I knew he was going to be an all-star quarterback one day, right? You love it. You, you, you love sort of the, the shine of the glory from the hometown hero, right? Uh, networks, they know this. You're watching sporting events or the Olympics or something in politics, and they go 
back to the hometown and they, they interview the people who, who knew who he was or knew who she was back in the day. And, and we love it. Except those times when he gets a little too good, right? He gets a little too big for his britches. And he comes home and, and you think, well, he doesn't, he doesn't eat at the local restaurant with us like he used to, right? She doesn't shop at the local store. She's too good for us now. Uh, that somehow he's lost his accent. He doesn't talk like us anymore, right? And what we once loved about the hometown hero, now it just gets a little bit tiresome, a little bit annoying. It bothers us. They become a bitter taste in our mouth. Or they become, in the words of Jesus himself, a stumbling block. See, something's happened in Jesus coming home. There's something similar here in the account of Jesus. He has gone out into the world. He has done and accomplished all sorts of ministry. And he comes back to Nazareth and he is received in a telling way. First, he's loved and they're somewhat proud of him, but that doesn't last for long and they're offended by him. Jesus, in some ways, had even spoken or predicted of this. A couple chapters earlier, he'd said famously, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. One sentence in the teaching of Jesus, we're actually going to use that one sentence as our main idea in the text this morning. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. He could even be thinking of his own hometown, right? Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. To understand that verse, let's follow our hero's journey back home. Uh, In this text, I think we see three stages in the journey of the hometown hero, right? In the first stage, uh, we're going to call, I'm going to call a humble beginning, a humble beginning. This is, of course, what we celebrate in the Advent season. It's what we celebrate Christmas morning, the the beginning, the arrival uh, of Emmanuel, God with us. His birth in the manger in Bethlehem, uh, a humble beginning. The Bible tells us this is the account of God who is becoming man by taking to himself a human body. And as we, as we sing some of these hymns and as we read some of the familiar verses, we see that from the earth's perspective, it's a pretty humble beginning, right? It's a pretty humble birth, not in a fancy place, right? Not with earthly trumpets sounding, right? Not with great fanfare and, and great applause and great crowds coming. He was born in a, in a low condition from the earth's perspective. But then there's the other type of Christmas songs that we sing, and there's the other passages that we read, and it's the exact opposite of a humble beginning, isn't it? Uh, it's, it's trumpets blaring, it's choirs singing, it's the heavenly perspective, where it's glorious, right? In the world's eyes, it's just another old day, right? But from heaven's eyes, right, it's the greatest day in the history of the world. It's somehow both this, this strange juxtaposition of humble and glorious in the very same arrival. You maybe have experienced something like this, uh, if you've flown uh, through the Atlanta airport. Some of you know, uh, some of you have been there many times for work or for travel or to see family, and it's just an ordinary trip. You're just getting off the plane. You're trying to find your luggage, right? You're trying to call your friend. You're trying to, you know, set up your Uber to come pick you up. It's just this 
ordinary day and you're focused on doing the next thing and you get off and all of a sudden you hear this great cheering and applause and you look up and there's people crying and there's sort of American flags flying and you realize you've gotten off the plane, you had no idea, with a soldier coming home from battle, from deployment, from years away. And there's this crowd and what you thought was an incredibly ordinary event. You're just getting off your plane, right? Turns out it's a glorious arrival. You see, it's all about the perspective, isn't it? The humble beginning from one angle, the glorious arrival from another angle. Those two differences continue in the life of Jesus, the humble beginning, the humble childhood. Uh, It's sort of amazing in the pages of the Bible, we get almost nothing about the life of Jesus between the, the, what, three, maybe four chapters about his birth up into the beginning of his ministry a few decades later. Uh, Luke tells us sort of uh, one of those uh, telling accounts uh, where his, Jesus is found in the temple. You remember this. And his, uh, he says to his parents, Luke chapter 2, verse 49, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. This young child in the, in the synagogue instructing all of those there. And yet also something very ordinary, right? A kid who was left by his parents in a public place. And he goes home with them, very obedient and submissive. And then verse 52 says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature, and in favor with God and man. There's all sorts of speculation about what was that humble beginning like. We even sang a hymn last night. That line struck me for the first time. Uh, It piqued my ire for the first time in Away in a Manger. Uh, I don't know if any of you all recognize this line where we sing, The little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. I will... Bet Jesus cried as a baby. <laughs> I mean, he cried as an adult, right? Uh, I would imagine, maybe uh, Jim said this earlier, maybe he cried a little bit less than our kids, right? I think he still cried. He was hungry. He was tired. He was cold. Uh, he needed uh, his mom and dad to take care of him. You see, there's something that's hard for us to, to understand about how Jesus could be so ordinary. I mean, he came home and the people were saying, what's the big deal? I know his dad. He's just a carpenter, right? Maybe a, a, a construction worker, a builder, right? Maybe what that word means. His mom, it's Mary. We know her. Right? We know his brothers. They name these, these four guys. We don't know much about them until later. We know that right now his four brothers, they don't really believe in him. They don't really follow him. It's not until later in life, after his death and resurrection, that they come to trust in Jesus, First time, I think it's the only time in Scripture we learn he had sisters as well. We don't know who they are. But you can see this crowd saying, what's the big deal? It's just Jesus, right? We know that guy. Uh, We heard him crying. We know his mom. We know his dad. We know his siblings. You see, we sort of want there to be something incredible about Jesus, his childhood. There's actually stories out there in some ancient manuscripts about all this sort of wonderful, miraculous stuff he did as a child. The Bible never tells us about this. In fact, I think his reaction of those who know him in his hometown tells us that they didn't think much of him either. That he was, sure, he was sinless, of course, 
but he was somewhat ordinary as a child. If he had been exceptional, his hometown would not have been so surprised. And let me tell you how wonderful this is for us. Because the more boring his childhood, the greater news it is for you and me. Because the the point of his arrival, the point of God becoming man, is he becomes fully man. He becomes everything about us, right? He doesn't just become like the best and the strongest and the smartest of us. No, he's, he's like all of us. He's the weak, right? He's the lowly. He comes all the way down. If he had been something sort of separate, if he had sort of been the, the cream of the humanity's crop right at the top, well, then there's no hope for the rest of us, for you and me. But he came all the way down. He came and became like all of us. He endured the miseries of this life. He took it all on us. And why is that such good news? Because now he represents all of us to the Father. If he didn't take on all of you, he only took on the really good parts of you. That's all that he could represent to God in heaven. But we need a Savior who's like us in every single way, yet without sin. We don't need one with an exceptional beginning. We need one with a humble beginning. That's where the journey begins for our hometown hero, his humble beginning. So one would assume he is welcomed home when he comes back with open arms, right? Well, we see secondly, our second heading in this text is a hero's return. Or maybe I should try to say it like this, a hero's return? If you're taking notes, there's a question mark there. Is this really the return of a hero? He's treated a little bit more like the return of a villain, Jesus goes out as we began in Matthew's gospel, the beginning of his ministry. You'll remember John the Baptist comes and he preaches. And then right afterwards, he baptizes Jesus. And then Jesus begins to preach. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's when he begins to do his miraculous works. His baptism and then his temptation in the desert is sort of his arrival onto the scene of history. He presumably hadn't really done anything outrageous or spectacular or miraculous before that. But now he has come in this sliver of time in history to make the kingdom of heaven known. And we've been following for a year in Matthew's gospel, his healings, his miracles, his teaching, all the gospel that he preaches that is summarized in chapter one, that God sent Jesus to save his people from their sin. And he comes and shows that he does this. And he comes to sinful people. He comes to poor people. He comes to injured people. He comes to sick people. And what does he do time and time again? He heals. He saves. He raises. There are these images that show us in the physical of what he has done to do in our very souls. That he has come to save his people from their sin. The last three weeks, we have looked at the eight parables that begin chapter 13, and these parables show us a division. They show us that some people received Jesus and his message, but a lot of people rejected it. So we would think, as we're reading this, well, if anyone's going to receive him, it's got to be the people in Nazareth, right? So we follow Jesus home. Verse 53 picks up the account. He's finished teaching the parables. And now he goes to his hometown of Nazareth and he taught them in their synagogue. 
Presumably, this is the synagogue where he grew up. This is where he learned the scriptures. Right? This is where he was taught and discipled right, by the local leaders. This is where his parents faithfully brought him to memorize the words. This is where he sat with his brothers and sisters. And he learned and he was one of the ordinary children. And he comes back to that very same synagogue and he teaches and they were astonished. That word astonished, it means exactly what you think it means. The word means astounded and amazed. If you do a little word search about how often that word appears in the Gospels, it always appears after he teaches, or only ever appears after he teaches. Hearing the teaching of Jesus left people astonished. And they're especially astonished because they know where this guy came from, and he wasn't much, right? Most of you know the name of uh, one of our former presidents, Ulysses S. Grant. It's a powerful name, right? I mean, Grant, he was a president. He was a war hero, right? He sounds like he must have been a pretty impressive guy. But his childhood was very, very ordinary. In fact, he was just a scrawny little runt of a kid. So much so that when the town found out that he was going to West Point, they laughed at him. They thought, that guy is going to learn how to be an officer in the military. He was the brunt of the jokes of the bullies in town. And he goes off to West Point. So when he returns four years later as a second lieutenant, people are shocked at the change they see in little old Ulysses Grant. And here he is. They can begin to see the workings of the hero he will become. Jesus, unimpressive as a child, comes back opens his mouth, and the hearers are astonished. Now, what is it about his teaching that so astonished them? Well, look at the first question they ask in verse 54. Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Then they ask about his dad, his mom, his brothers, and his sisters. Then they ask a similar question at the end of verse 55. Where then did this man get all these things. Do you see? You can circle it. Our, the key question they ask is where, right? Where did he go to school? Where did he go off and become so impressive? Where did he get his training? Where was he educated? I mean, in the, in the religious education of the day, the question is, what rabbi did he study under? Where's his letter of references, right? What diplomas are on his wall? What is the source of such authoritative, astonishing teaching? Now, they might not have known it yet, but there was a theory going around about the source of Jesus's astonishing teaching. You remember what the theory is? The source is Satan. He's already been accused of this. It's already been assumed by the religious leaders of the day who were threatened by him. Yeah, it must be Satan, right? Can't be from God. It's not from one of us, so I guess it can't be from God. Must be from Satan himself. And if Jesus' authority and teaching comes from Satan, well, then we better ignore it, right? We better not listen to him. We better write him off and find safer teaching. Because if his authority is from God, well, then we better listen to him. We better sit up straight. We better take notes. We better do whatever he says. We better listen and obey. You see why the question of authority is so important for the hearers. 
And it's a question we ask all the time today. We want to know the authority of those who are talking to us. We want to know the authority of the stuff we read on the internet, don't we? I mean, if you're on, uh, uh, on Twitter, you know of the blue check marks, right? There's, anybody can get a Twitter account, right? Anybody can have a profile on Twitter, but only certain people get the special blue check mark, right? They have the credentials or the authority or whatever it is. It's sort of saying, yeah, you can trust them. If Jesus was on Twitter, I don't think he would be. <laughs> if he were alive today and he were on Twitter, I don't think he would have a check mark, right? Where did his authority come from? Honestly, we ask that same question today of him. I don't hear often the theory that his authority came from Satan so we can ignore him. But I do think we've, many, many people speculate his authority is just in himself. He's just another religious guy talking, right? Just put him on the shelf with all of the other religious books. He doesn't have any special authority outside of himself, which means it's safe to ignore him. Because if his authority really is from God, if he gets the wisdom and these mighty things from God, well, then it's not safe to ignore him, is it? So many people today respond to Jesus just like his hometown responded to him. Where did he get it? It couldn't have been from God. Let me invite you to look into the claims of Jesus. Let me invite you to actually read the words that he said. Read the prophecies that he claims are about him. Read the words of those who followed him, of those who who came to believe in him. If you read the words of Jesus, there's only one conclusion, is that his authority, where did it all come from, was God. There's nowhere else. It certainly wasn't Satan. It wasn't just an ordinary man. They are astonished. Because they're hearing God speaking to them in Christ. But that astonishment, it doesn't last very long. It quickly turns sour. And that's where we see our third and final step in the hero's journey home. The third step is a hostile rejection. A hostile rejection. Maybe you've heard the the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. Have you heard this phrase before? You're around someone or something enough, you just, it starts to turn sour and you don't like them or you don't like the thing anymore, right? You thought you were best friends and then you became roommates (laughs) and then you weren't best friends anymore, right? Familiarity breeds contempt. Is there something about that here in the familiarity that the town is so Familiar with Jesus, they regard him with contempt. This hostile rejection, by the way, it's got, it goes in two directions. The first direction is that Nazareth rejects Jesus. Look at verse 57. After they asked the questions and they took offense at him, they're offended by him. This takes us back to our main idea. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. They're offended by him what look at that phrase they took offense that could also be translated they were scandalized by him or we could translate it the word has a wide range of meaning as a stumbling block 
He's a stumbling block for them. The word can also mean causes to fall. The idea of a stumbling block. You trip over something. So Jesus caused them to fall. Or as somebody else says even clearer, they found in Jesus obstacles to faith. They see everything, right? Christianity, the fulfillment of the New Testament, the good news, the ethical moral behavior, the concern for justice, the care for the poor. It's all great, except there's Jesus right in the way. (laughs) And there's something about Jesus and his claims and his uniqueness and his offering of salvation only through faith in him that causes even the smartest people to stumble and to trip over him. They're tripping over Jesus. That word took offense. We've seen it already this month. I didn't point it out, but back in the the parable a couple weeks ago, the parable of the sower, remember the seeds fall in different types of ground. Uh, You have the, the, the the, the path, the rocky ground, and then among the weeds, among the thorns, sorry, and the, that seed grows up, verse 21 says, endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he, here's our word, falls away. It's the same word as stumbling block. It's the same word as scandalized. It's the same word as took offense. Everything's going fine until Jesus. <laughs> and he causes his hometown, to fall away. What is it? What is it that would cause people who knew and saw and heard such astonishing teaching, what would cause them to fall away? Well, what would cause you to start to not like so much that hometown hero that seems a little bit better than you, a little too big for his britches, It's pride. I think the root of the rejection of Jesus here is pride. And pride blinds even the smartest of us, even the most well-read of us from seeing Jesus. What do you trip over? You trip over that thing you don't see. (laughs) And that pride that caused his hometown even to rejection, that, that root of pride, it grows and it grows. And so we see at the end of verse 58, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. The fruit of that pride is unbelief. Jesus was honored everywhere except his hometown. As we follow the way the narrative flows, you see this this moment of astonishment, I think, is is sort of like the, the cracking open a window of faith. That, that moment of sort of clarity, of, of hearing Jesus in his own words for the first time. And it's, it's astonishing. What, what could this be? It must be from God. And that's that, that astonishment is, is, is cracking open the window of faith. Pride comes over the top and slams it shut. <laughs> it can't be that. No, no, no. It's not that simple. It's not that clear gospel message. There's got to be someone else. There's got to be other ways. 
And that astonishment that's there for a moment, a, a sliver in time, is slammed shut. Maybe you know of that in, even in your own life. Of having those, those moments of, maybe this is it. Maybe this is all true. Maybe he is who he says he is, and, and that window of faith begins to crack open. And then pride takes offense and slams it shut. Nazareth rejects Jesus. Our third point, the hostile rejection. I told you that rejection goes both ways because the second idea is that Jesus rejects Nazareth. And that's what we see in verse 58. He did not do many mighty works there. Do you remember why Jesus does mighty works? It's probably three or four times already in Matthew's gospel. It's to show himself that people believe when they see his mighty works. This is judgment. This is a small precursor of judgment that he doesn't do mighty works there. He sees their hearts hardening and he lets them alone. It's the same words by which he advised his Disciples back in chapter 10, that when they go to a town that does not receive them to shake the dust off their feet. Jesus is shaking the dust off his feet in his own hometown. What began as a humble beginning continued with the hero's return and sadly concludes with a hostile rejection. The great Christian author C.S. Lewis wrote of of something like this. In his uh, final book in the Narnia series called The Last Battle, C.S. Lewis writes of the the end of this story. Some of you know, some of you kids will remember Aslan and and Lucy and Edmund and Peter and Susan and all the the characters in the Narnia series, uh, all the parallels to Christian faith. And the end, the last battle, the hero returns. Aslan, right? This lion, this sort of uh, God figure returns and everybody loves it. They welcome him and there's celebration and there's, there's, there's cheering and there's faith and there's partying and there's feast. But there's this one little group of people that don't. Maybe you remember there some of the dwarves, that these, fictional, these fictional characters, they want nothing to do with this new life. And they're described by C.S. Lewis as blind. The lion growls warnings at them and they're blind and they don't, they don't respond to it. And the lion invites them to this rich feast and they turn their nose up at it and say, no, he's just, it's just grub. He's trying, to, he's trying to poison us. And all the other creatures are distraught. How can you miss Aslan and the, the new world he is bringing to bear? And C.S. Lewis summarizes it like this. He says of the blind ones, they have chosen cunning instead of belief. He writes, their prison is only in their own minds, yet they are in that prison. And they're so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. Their pride refuses the arrival of Jesus. They will not be taken in. They stumble on him. So they cannot be taken out. Don't you see this with the Nazarenes? Brothers and sisters, friends, this Christmas, we celebrate the one who has come to take us out. 
He has come to take us out of the prison of our own prideful hearts. He has come to take us out of the darkness of our own unbelief. He has come to take us out of the world of our own sin and misery. Let us trust in Christ today, for indeed, blessed is the one who is not offended by him. Let's pray.